Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Dr. Haken, as we approach Easter and as we consider the historical context of the crucifixion happening uh, within the Greco-Roman world, uh, what was the, the Greco-Roman uh, world view of resurrection? Yeah, the ancient world, uh, the Greco-Roman uh, culture in which the early church uh, takes its immediate rise, uh, by and large, was um, just as worldly wise as our modern world when it came to death. Uh, the dead do not come back to life. Uh, dead bodies, once the body has died, uh, it's basically done with. Virtually everybody in the Greco-Roman world believes in a life after death. Uh, the Epicureans uh, dabbled in really kind of... Um, uh, the, 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 the person completely disappears with death. But virtually everybody else, whether Platonists, uh, uh, Stoics, or just your average person who didn't have a commitment to a philosophical perspective, uh, the soul continued to exist. And so the, the immortality of the soul is a given for the ancient world, but not the resurrection of the body. And so you have the Greek playwright uh, Aeschylus in one of his works uh, says this, when once a man has died and the dust has drunk his blood, there is no resurrection, end of quote. And the word he uses for resurrection there is Anastasis, which becomes the basis for a Christian name, Anastasia. Uh, you find the same sort of approach to the Christian message uh, that it's really folly um, in uh, the reaction of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill. Um, they're listening to Paul until he gets to the affirmation of the resurrection in Acts 17.32. At that point, they know the man's a pseudo-intellectual. He's got nothing to tell them because they knew as a fundamental tenet of their Greco-Roman thinking that the resurrection is not feasible. Uh, this sort of thinking might also lie behind the statement in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, by some of the Corinthians, there is no resurrection of the dead. They may well be expressing this kind of common view that the resurrection is not feasible. It's not possible. The dead do not come back to life. Um, so Christianity then stands in complete isolation, along with Judaism, in its affirmation of the resurrection. So, for instance, the author of Hebrews states that the doctrine of the resurrection in Hebrews 6 is part of the basics of the Christian faith. This is, this is a basic aspect of the Christian faith. If the Greco-Roman world could take it as a basic uh, presupposition that the dead do not rise in their bodies that, in which they inhabited this world, uh, the Christian faith, like Judaism, affirms as a basic tenet in the faith in the resurrection. Um, so Abraham, uh, we're told in Hebrews, again in Hebrews 11, uh, that when God told him to sacrifice Isaac, he was confident that if he did so, God was able to raise him from the dead. 
And uh, this this affirmation of resurrection comes to uh, a high point, as it were, in Hebrews, when in Hebrews 13, verse 20, we read that the God who Christians adore and believe in is the one who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And so um, the intellectual climate of the Greco-Roman world in which the good news was first preached was one in which the gospel, that Christ has been raised from the dead, would have been would have been greeted with disbelief, um, incredulity, and uh, mockery. Um, obviously, there was also the affirmation that the the divine Messiah is crucified, and that's also obviously a problem for many in the Greco-Roman world. But the resurrection is equally a problem. Um, if Christianity had been willing to compromise and affirm the immortality of the soul of Jesus, fine. But uh, the gospel message is that Christ has been raised from the dead in accord with the scriptures. In other words, in accord with the Old Testament, which affirms also the resurrection of the body, which is the, the where the book of Hebrews is coming from. In the key uh, verse of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, it says... For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Can you comment on the importance of the phrase, and he was buried? Yes. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very familiar passage. It's one that's read probably pretty well every Easter. And uh, because of its affirmation of the resurrection, and because Paul goes on to talk about why he believes that the resurrection is a reality, not simply because he has seen the risen Christ, but because of Christ also being seen by others. Um, but these state these words, which Paul wrote probably in the early summer of 54 AD, so about 20 years after the resurrection, um, are actually a mini creed. And uh, which Paul uh, indicates that he had received this teaching from earlier Christian witnesses, very possibly in Damascus, not long after his, uh, after his conversion. At most three years later, when he went up to Jerusalem um, to meet P Paul, Peter and James. In other words, this text affirms that within a few years, uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus were being taught as essential to the Christian faith. It, it is very close to the actual events. And uh, the burial of Christ is of, of great significance because it affirms the reality of the death of Christ. Um, obviously, if Christ is not dead, the resurrection then is undermined. And so there has to be the affirmation of death, and the burial seals that affirmation, as it were. Um, there is a theory that he developed in the 19th century called the swoon theory, developed by a number of liberal scholars, which is that Christ went into a comatose state on the cross, was not actually dead, um, and that when he was placed in the cool tomb, uh, he revived. But um, it's got serious problems, that argument. Number one, the Romans knew how to kill people. And uh, they were not going to be putting, pulling somebody down from the cross who was not dead. The spear in the side with the water and the blood already separated, which indicates that death has taken place. The 
separation of of the of um, the core element of blood from the more watery element is indicative of that. And also the disciples, if they were confronted with a badly bruised, uh, limping, seriously injured Jesus uh, on Sunday, would hardly have seen him as resurrected. And would hardly have seen this as, as the, 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 the glorified Jesus. Um, in other words, the whole idea of a swoon theory breaks uh, stretches uh, the text to, to uh, in terms of credulity, to a breaking point. Um, this is also important in view of the church's, the necessity of the church witnessing to Islam, which affirms very, very clearly, both in the Quran and popularly, that Christ was not crucified. In other words, he was not dead. He was snatched up to heaven by Allah. But the text says here, Christ died. He was buried. Burial is, is vital to the Jewish faith, and all of the early Christians, as, as one knows, are Jews. So you, you go all the way back to Genesis, the, the beginning of God's people in the land of what we call Israel. When God leads uh, Abraham to, to Israel, um, Abraham spends decades in the land without owning any of it, and he only is pushed to own some of it when he contemplates the possibility, which is now increasingly uh, on the horizon of the death of himself and his wife, Sarah. And so he purchases some land in Genesis 23. And the event is recorded at great length because burial of the dead is absolutely vital in Judaism. Uh, you find it again with Joseph. When Joseph is dying in Egypt, he emphasizes, do not leave me in Egypt, take me back to Canaan to be buried there. Um, when God is preparing his people to enter the land and you have all of the law given um, in the various books that we call the Pentateuch, uh, in Deuteronomy 21, uh, God tells his people never to leave the dead unburied, even criminals. They must be buried. If they are not buried, they, def they, they will spiritually defile the land. Um, even dead enemies, uh, those who come up against God's people, um, uh, and I'm thinking here of, of uh, both in terms of the historical events of the Old Testament, 1 Kings 11, but also Ezekiel 39, which speaks of the latter days when uh, Israel is surrounded by, according to Ezekiel 39, the enemies of God, and God deals with them, the dead are to be buried so as not to defile the land. And so all of this is background, very, very important background. Uh, this concern with the burial of the dead uh, is very much part of Jesus' world. Uh, the rabbis in Jesus' day considered the burial of the dead to be nothing less than a sacred duty. It's more important than the study of the Torah. It's more important than the study of the Torah, the circumcision of one's son, or even in the offering of the Passover. So if, if you've got a person in your household who dies on uh, Saturday, the day you're supposed to do the Torah, or dies at a point that it would uh, the burial needs to take place on the Saturday, rather than do go to synagogue to hear the Torah read, you bury, you bury uh, the person. Again, 
if the eighth day of your son, after your son's birth was the day for circumcision and you had to engage in a burial, you bury the dead before you engage in the circumcision of your son. Or if the, the, the same, if the burial uh, clashed with the offering of the Passover. That's why Jesus' statement, let the dead bury the dead. When somebody said to me, let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. That is such a shocking statement that the gospel and his proclamation have priority over this, which was the most important thing in Jewish, in the Jew, one of the most important things in the Jewish faith. Um, no corpse could remain unburied. Jew, Gentile, friend or enemy of God, all were to be buried. And thus Jesus is buried uh, in accord with strong Jewish tradition. Uh, in Jewish tradition, burial was on the day of death was to be followed by seven days of mourning. Um, this is all laid out in, uh, of, it's found in a variety of scriptures in the Old Testament, Genesis 50, uh, 1 Samuel as well. Mourning would often take place at the tomb. And um, then, and you needed to know where the tomb was. This is very, very important. You need to know where the tomb was because a year later you would come back and gather the bones. The body is laid uh, on a shelf in the tomb. And then you come back a year later and gather the bones together after the flesh is, uh, is decomposed. And you put the bones in an ossuary. And that's a practice called an ossilegium. And so it's vital to know where the tomb is. Um, you don't want to be coming back to the wrong tomb and performing the ossilegium on somebody who's not your relative. And so all of this is vital to, to the gospel story of the resurrection. He was buried. So that's got to do with all of the Old Testament custom. And you would know where he was buried because the oscillagium has to be performed a year later. That's really helpful. So in, in light of what you just said, what then is the significance of the empty tomb? Well, we're told in the gospel accounts that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And that some of the women who ministered to him and administered to him during his lifetime and, and also to his disciples noted exactly where the tomb was. Um, all of the accounts mention this, all of them. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, uh, John 19. The following day is the Sabbath uh, when they would rest. So he's buried on the day of death. The following day is the Sabbath. And they plan to return on the day after the Sabbath which would be the first day of the week, to perfume the corpse. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, had already begun perfuming the, of Jesus, the perfuming of Jesus' body on the day of his death. Because of the lateness of the hour, they could not finish it because the Sabbath would begin in the evening. So what is basically Friday evening is when the Sabbath begins and then runs to, to Saturday evening. And um, the, all these uh, traditional Jewish practices are found in the Gospels. And what's critical is the, 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 the women are thinking in terms of the oscillegium. They would perfume the body. They have to know exactly where the tomb is. And so this, again, refutes the argument that the women came to the wrong tomb. Because that would be, that would be fundamentally against all Jewish custom. Um, 
And if, if the women had gone to the wrong tomb, it would be very easy for Jewish authorities to go out, which they would have done, and said, no, no, you, you went to the wrong tomb. Here's the right tomb. And produce the body. So when the re women return to the tomb uh, in which Jesus' body has been laid on the day after the Sabbath, uh, sorry, the day, uh, yeah, the day after the Sabbath, they find it empty. All of the gospel accounts, again, record the emptiness of the tomb. Luke 24, Matthew 28, uh, Mark 16, um, uh, John uh, 20. Paul, in his account in 1 Corinthians 15, does not mention the, the, uh, explicitly the, the empty tomb, but he implies it when he says Jesus was buried and raised on the third day. If he was buried, he was in the tomb. If he was raised, then his very body was raised, and there's no body in the tomb. Paul does not believe in the immortality of the soul. Uh, if you remember uh, on one occasion when he was uh, brought to trial in Jerusalem, um, and uh, there was uh, he astutely played off the hostility between the, Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he, he stood up and said, I am on trial today for the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul very clearly believes, as the, the Old Testament teaches, that it is the resurrection of the dead in which we place our hope. Um, and that is bodily resurrection. To a Jewish mind, resurrection is one thing. It's bodily resurrection. Nor does Paul mention, interestingly enough, in his account, the witness of the women. Um, uh, this is, again, simple. Paul is giving a legal witness in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, in Jewish society in that in the first century, uh, women could not give uh, or could not serve as legal witnesses. So it's a formal statement of the witnesses of the resurrection, and therefore the women are not mentioned. But the very fact that they, it's the gospel records uh, that indicate it was women who discovered the empty tomb, even, even further uh, authenticates the, the reality of the empty tomb. No Jewish man left to himself would have ever said that the first people to discover the empty tomb were women because women can't function as legal witnesses. And so um, if the tomb is empty, it's the right tomb. There's no swoon theory. If the tomb is empty, uh, uh, where is the body? Jesus was dead. The Romans want to make sure of that. Um, now, in Matthew, the Jewish authorities come up with an explanation. But it, it's, a, it's a really a, 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 a silly explanation, which is that the disciples have stolen the body. But why, why would you die for a lie? The explanation of the Jewish leaders also is a witness to the empty tomb. Right? They couldn't, they didn't, they could not find the body. You can be, bet your bottom dollar that there would have been a search, for, you know, maybe he was, maybe they, they, they thought they, the women had the wrong tomb, they go to another tomb, but they, they, the body was not there. They knew that. And uh, if they could have produced the body, they would have. They couldn't produce the body because the tomb is empty. And uh, again, the, preaching of the resurrection is done in the very place where he was killed and buried and it goes on for weeks months right 
Um, it would have been very easy for the Jewish authorities to squash the early church movement by producing the body of Jesus. They don't. In other words, the invention of the the, the invention of the, the uh, by the authorities of the disciples stealing the body is a tacit admission that they knew the tomb is empty. And why is the tomb empty? Because the only the only plausible reason is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. As this episode is released, it will be around Easter time. And as we consider the resurrection, as we meditate upon these things, why is the resurrection worth our meditation? And, and why is it essential to the gospel? Why, um, how should it fuel my affection and my love and obedience to Christ? Well, I think, first of all, it's the, the, the historicity. The, the, the reason I've spent some time here thinking about the historicity of the event uh, is that it roots the acts of God in history. It's the same sort of thing you find in the Old Testament. The acts of God are not some sort of um, mystical reality that happens only in human minds and human hearts. Um, and so there is a there is a popular 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 song. You know the reason why uh, I, I believe in the resurrection is Jesus lives in my heart. Well, that's not the reason why I believe in the resurrection. The reason I believe in the resurrection is because. The tomb was empty. He was seen, as Paul goes on to say. Um, he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve, and then by five hundred. And then he was seen by Jesus' own brother, James, who had not believed a whit about Jesus all through his lifetime. Then he was seen by all of the apostles, and then he was also seen by Paul. And what Paul saw on the road to Damascus was a historical event in space and time. It wasn't something happening simply in his mind. The word that he uses in Greek, opthe, is the same word he uses for all of the other resurrection appearances. In other words, uh, unlike, say, what John sees in the book of Revelation, where he has visions of, of, of the risen Christ, and glorified Christ, and ascended, and seated, and, and coming Christ. This is not what Paul saw on the road to Damascus. Paul saw the risen Jesus in in the fullness of his glorified body. And that historical event is absolutely bedrock. The Christian faith is a, is a, is a reality that takes place in space and time. In other words, undergirding my undergirding piety is history, real history. It's not just um, um, reflections that happen to be mystical reflections, but there is the historical grounding. History is important. Uh, Christianity is not a flight from history at all, unlike, say, Buddhism or um, some of the <clears throat> uh, Asian religions. Christianity is grounded in space and time. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then we might as well pack everything in. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then it affirms the, 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 the crucifixion and all that the crucifixion means. Uh, that Christ died for our sins. The whole idea of um, uh, substitution and uh, propitiation and the imputation of my sins to Christ, which Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians 5. That uh, Christ was made sin for us, and we that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. All of this is grounded in the historical uh, uh, affirmation that Christ died on that cross, and His death was for my sins. And so, um, this sort of reflection then on the historicity should 
make us realize that the affirmations we make about the cross um, are true because God raised Jesus from the dead because death could not hold this one uh, because there was nothing in him that was worthy of death. He had never sinned. Rather, he took upon himself our sins. So this is really, this kind of historical reflection is, is, is absolutely central to our faith. And therefore, we can proclaim, uh, and we should proclaim, not simply at Easter. Um, we should proclaim on a regular basis through the year, the resurrection. And um, it, it, it's, it's odd that uh, evangelicals usually do not preach the resurrection apart from Easter time. And yet, this is the gospel message that was preached regularly in the book of Acts. Um, it's the affirmation of the resurrection um, that the apostles, that there were eyewitnesses who had seen him. And therefore, the Christian proclamation that all of what was predicted by the prophets is fulfilled in Christ. Um, on the basis of the resurrection comes Pentecost. Without the resurrection, we don't have Pentecost. Because Christ has been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. The Father has given him the gift of the Spirit to give to all. So at the foundation of Pentecost is the resurrection. So the resurrection is the seal of the cross. In fact, in uh, Romans, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on this. Paul says Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. We tend to limit justification to um, to the cross. What do you make of that passage then in, in Romans? But definitely as we look ahead in the Christian calendar to Pentecost, Pentecost is founded upon the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Christ would not be given the gift of the Spirit to give as he, as he, as he pleases. And Peter links this very clearly in uh, Acts chapter 2 in his speech on the day of Pentecost. So all of this is of great, great significance for us. And um, our hope is not the immortality of the soul. The hope is Our hope is in the resurrection of the dead, that we shall be as Christ is, was, and still is. And that the very bodies that we inhabit are important. This has all kinds of um, practical implications. Um, you know, why, why Paul, Paul built... Paul brings us out in 1 Corinthians. Why, why should I not join my body sexually to the body of, of, of a prostitute? Well, because the body is made for God. Jesus died for these very bodies. He didn't simply die for my soul, but he died for the resurrection of my body. Our bodies are important. They're temples. Um, now, you can obviously take this to an extreme. Um, but what we do in our bodies, our bodily existence is of importance to us and to God. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead uh, affirms this. So there's a, a variety of ways in which you can take the, 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 the doctrine of the resurrection in terms of its significance. Um, the seal of, of, the, of, the, of the crucifixion, the foundation of Pentecost, uh, the whole area of practical ethics and the importance of the resurrection to eschatology. If a person does not believe in the resurrection of the body, they're not a Christian. I don't, I don't say that lightly. 
Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. So these are this is a this is an absolutely fundamental of the faith. Are there any resources that you would point the listeners to on the resurrection? Yeah, uh, uh, both of them are interesting uh, sources. Um, one of them is uh, by N.T. Wright, and uh, it's a big book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, N.T. Wright, it's an academic book, so it, 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 it does have challenges in a scholarly direction. Uh, N.T. Wright is often seen as a problematic figure because of his views of justification. And he is. I mean, I, I've got some differences with him on uh, i would have differences with him on that but in his exploration of the resurrection uh it's it, 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 some of his material is really fabulous uh, so nt Wright, the resurrection of the son of god which he published in 2003 um william lane craig it's an older book uh the sun rises s-o-n rises the historical evidence for the resurrection of jesus um more popular presentation of that is Lee Strobel, uh, The Case for Easter. But one that I found um, that is very, very significant uh, is uh, an older book uh, by uh, Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone? And it's a 1930 book, uh, very similar to Lee Strobel. Strobel was an unbeliever and decided as an investigative investigative journalist to, to look at the Christian faith through the eyes of an objective journalist and was led to faith in Christ through that. And the same with Frank Morrison. Morrison uh, came to faith in Christ by looking at the the last days of Jesus in this world in terms of uh, the earthly ministry of Jesus. And um, he looks at the uh, events of the crucifixion and really produces a, a synthesis of the various events in the various gospels. Um, I've always found his book very helpful. Um, as I say, it's an older book. It was republished I, um, by uh, Zondervan in the early part of this millennium, but it dates from 1930s. Um, a very, very helpful uh, book. And uh, then one final one is uh, N.T. Wright and Craig Evans uh, called Jesus, The Final Days. And uh, Craig Evans, uh, I, I will happily and readily admit that the material that I talked about in terms of the burial Christ was drawn from the chapter in that book by Craig Evans called The Shout of Death. And um, anyway, those are a number of very, very helpful resources. Um, the first one, d- d- read to beware, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dense, uh, large book, uh, academic. Um, but there's a number there that uh, one could easily pick up and read uh, that are more popular. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.